0: Welcome to the Race Forward Pod. I'm your host, Lydia Igwe. When it comes to fostering inclusion and demonstrating the value of difference, our guest today is most certainly achieving this. By utilizing sponsorship as a change vehicle, he pairs leadership and underrepresented groups to push for increased diversity at senior levels. He leverages his lived experience to create awareness of the challenges to socio-economic inclusion for those from a working class background in corporate environments. He has also worked with students in various schools and colleges, helping them recognize the value of their own diversity, cultural identity and lived experience. He's pioneered groundbreaking social mobility networks and is currently developing a diversity podcast to increase understanding around DNI in his own workplace. Join me in this eye-opening conversation with Reg Amoa, the diversity and inclusion lead for Omnicom Media Group UK. Reg is a keen writer, keeping DNI as a top-ranking topic through his articles. Thank you for joining us, Reg. I'm super excited to hear your story and achievements in the DNI space.
1: Right, Lydia, Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, honestly, it's been um, one of the episodes I've been looking forward to. So, one of the questions I wanted to kickstart with was, what inspired you to move into the DNI sector? I mean, what what do you want to personally achieve?
1: Yeah, you know, I still see myself as a bit of an outsider to the DNI world, even though I've worked in it for like three, four years now. So, I used to work. I mean, before I worked in DI, I used to work for a charity that was connecting schools and sort of uh, the corporate world, so like companies in Canary Wharf for the City. And because of that relationship, I would find myself often going into companies and coming across um, like DNI talks or DNI events. And what struck me was that I was often the only sort of black man in the room. And then on top of that, race was never really discussed or social background it was more about sort of gender or lgbtq and when i looked around i thought well of course if there's no one from that sort of demographical background then it's not really going to come up so i thought well for me to really have those conversations because i i know what those burdens are in terms of from black or no social economic backgrounds getting into the room so i need to be on the other side of the the fence to kind of open the doors. And so I thought, well, let me get in um to the DNI world. But you know, it wasn't immediately easy because I didn't fit the profile of the um, you know, of a DNI person. And when I went on LinkedIn, I could see that most were white and female. And, you know, that wasn't me. But I managed to convince a recruitment consultant to get me an interview at um Norton Rose Fulbright, which was like a law firm. And then, because I understood the value of my difference and what I could bring to the table, I was able to kind of persuade the people at the interview. And then, hence, I took my first journey into the DNI world. And I've always, what I've been trying to do, I guess, is open doors for people that wouldn't normally get in, just like myself.
0: Wow, that's so inspiring that you did that. It sounds like you also impressed those people, and that's why they gave you the chance because you were basically true to your values. Then, is that what you're saying?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess. It's because, you know, like when you're different, most of the time you will try and suppress that because difference is risky or people don't understand it. So whether it's changing your appearance or changing the way your name sounds or whatever it is that makes you stand out. But then I think because of my lived experience, it meant that because I was different, I've had to adapt. And in that comes a certain insight and a knowledge and an understanding and an empathy for other disenfranchised groups. So I saw my difference as a value. And so one of the things I try and do is get people to understand the value of difference as opposed to the cost of difference. Because there is a cost, but there's also a value. And so because I went into a situation presenting the value of difference, so leading with difference as opposed to suppressing it or hiding it, I think people are able to kind of buy into that and see how I can help them.
0: I love that, the value of difference. Yeah, I think that's really important. I don't think we hear enough about that. And obviously you're... You know, you're doing a lot around DNI, clearly. But what are the main strands that you're currently working on?
1: So we've got eight uh, DNI strands that we look at at work, and it, it's um, where I work, and they kind of reflect the, the protected characteristics. So you know, you're going to have age, uh, race, ethnicity, uh, gender, working parents and carers, LGBTQ+, social economic inclusion disability and mental health so it's a fair bit there and those are kind of those areas sit with our eight advisory teams.
0: Awesome and what do you think are sort of the priorities for you when it comes to those strands? do you have anything one thing in mind particularly or do they all have just different priorities?
1: Yeah I think everything kind of coalesces under a strategy so the kind of approach we take through that strategy is as a focus on attraction and recruitment so how do we work with like community partners and others to kind of make it easier for people to come into into the industry or into the organization I should say so um, that could be like apprenticeships or outreach programs and so on and then you've got like representation and retention. So how do you increase representation across all levels? So we then have the targets and we'll uh, sort of analyze the data in terms of retention and kind of use that to kind of incre- uh, help our retention and um, ensure that people feel that you, uh, we're working hard on increasing representation. Then you've got the education and workplace culture where and um, the advisory teams I mentioned before they play like a big role because what you're trying to do is uh, educate people and change the change the culture so we'll have speakers come in for um, uh, events there will be training um, a lot of internal communications just to kind of let people know what's going on and so it all kind of helps to kind of change the environment change people's way of thinking and then lastly you've got belonging and progression which is you know where you're trying to get to where it's more targeted so you have certain interventions and working with like membership organizations like stonewall try and get that accreditation and show people that they can belong because um you know you're a friendly organization to difference and then sort of target interventions like sponsorship which i'll talk a bit more about and where you're helping people to progress to where they need to get to
0: that sounds really vast but but also focused, so that that's really good. And clearly, in your career, you've developed global DNI strategies. I mean, my question around this is kind of, what do you think are some of the challenges of implementing these strategies, especially you know thinking about different cultures and locations, etc.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, go, it it goes back to culture. So, different societies will have different culture cultures. So, like where we are in the UK in our conversation around sort of diversity and inclusion inequality and things like that we may be in a different place you could argue further ahead than some other places where um, you might go to another country and rather than sort of celebrating or leading the difference kind of the focus is more on unity so they don't want people to kind of or you know it's not great for people to stand out so we don't maybe talk about race or any kind of ethnic difference um, because that's maybe seen as disruptive. And so that can, be, that can be a barrier. Or in some cultures, it might be more aggressive in terms of sexual orientation and, and gender identity. And so, you know, if, 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 if it's illegal to have those, to, to be that identity in that country, then that hampers you as well. So there can be a number of reasons, like politically and um, socially, why the conversation might have to be different in uh, different countries so you can't have a one-size-fits-all.
0: I don't think yeah you can have a one-size-fits-all I mean that's absolutely clear from the society we're seeing today but of course cultures they must take precedence to some extent in terms of how fast you can develop d and strategies so how do you kind of deal with them I mean obviously you mentioned about specific things around like gender and you know, race not potentially being at the forefront do you have any strategies that you've kind of used in the past to try and overcome some of these barriers
1: yeah so I think it's it's to do with giving people proximity and so I think that's one of the key reasons why I went into like the corporate world somewhere that was maybe felt like it wasn't my natural habitat if you like so but I went in there because by being there I could increase the proximity of the people around me so mm. you know I, I, i'll give you an example like in my last workplace that i was in when the george floyd situation happened mm. the murder i should say it was something where people weren't immediately sure what to what to say so there was there was silence and then you know it was an uncomfortable conversation but if i wasn't there it wouldn't have been had and i said to people look um when i first came here I was that only black guy in this sort of HR department. And mm. over time, you know, I got to know people, I got to know you all. And, we, you know, we had, we socialised together and I didn't feel like that. But when this situation happened and no one had anything to say, I was back to being the only black guy again. And that was hard to say, but it was hard for them to hear as well. But if I hadn't, if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't had that proximity to me as a, as a friend and a colleague, it wouldn't have do you know what i mean it wouldn't they wouldn't have been able to kind of kind of engage in that discussion and think well what can we do moving forward so it is about that proximity and kind of opening your mind and that's why we do so many events you know and sometimes you've got to be more intentional about it in terms of Going into discussions where you might not be comfortable or you might not be an expert in it, but just kind of open your minds. And even being within and I've had to do, do that myself. So, things, areas of DI that I didn't have proximity to, I had to reach out to people and just have discussions and just understand their experience and their worldview. And it's by doing that that you get the change.
0: Then that makes sense. I think you're absolutely right in terms of that. And you've been working on creating podcasts, right, to dis- encourage more discussion on DNI and, I suppose, lived experiences, really. So, what are you trying to achieve with this? Can you tell us a little bit about your idea around this?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the podcast idea has kind of been bouncing around with the different sort of advisory teams as well. I think, from from my perspective, when I started my new role it was been during lockdown, you know, working from home. So it's very hard to kind of gauge the culture you're in. And so I had to spend a lot of time talking to people and just getting to know them and having like, you know, having those kind of conversations where you get to really understand people. And, you know, I found that a lot of the assumptions I might have had about people just based on meeting them uh, superficially, those were kind of blown away once you, once you actually started talking to people. And I thought, this is great, but It's kind of limited to myself. So if we had these situations within a podcast where it could be shared and people could kind of just kind of listen in their own time and then kind of reflect on it and then maybe come together as a team and discuss, that would be be advantageous in terms of change, improving or improving the inclusion of, of, of um, the, the workplace culture. So that's the kind of idea is have a library of podcasts, have time for people to kind of listen and reflect and then come back within a team and kind of discuss what they've learned, almost like a book club. And then I think that's key that people do that within their teams because when people feel excluded, it's usually within that kind of team environment. But if you're having these discussions uh, as a team, then it kind of makes you more inclusive in your, in your local environment.
0: I love the idea. Absolutely. And I suppose what, one of my questions is how do you get the people to engage in even wanting to be on the podcast? Like presumably you're going out to people that work within your organisation, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know what? You'd be surprised though. When you when you talk to people, in fact, when I started the role, a lot of people reached out to me because they were interested in, in, in inclusion. So I had a colleague that reached out to me because... He was managing someone who had, I think it was Asperger's. And he wanted to ask my advice on what support his, the person who reported to him could get. And then and I thought, well, this guy has like a lot of empathy. Like he, he like he really cares. And when I started speaking to him, I found out that uh, even though he looked white, he was um, of Aboriginal ancestry and he was also a gay man. Wow. And so, and I wouldn't have gathered that unless I had a conversation with him. And then it it got quite and he told me about his experiences of people thinking he was white and so saying things around him that they wouldn't normally say to someone who was visibly different and so that gave me like a lot of insight from his perspective and how his experiences developed a a degree of empathy that he had for the, the person he was managing you know so there are people that really do care about these topics they may not kind of be the type that will go out of marches or wave flags and so on but i think everyone knows what it's like to feel like they don't belong for whatever reason or there's something that made them feel different at some point and um they don't want to be in that kind of environment that where people feel that way and i think you you can see that even when the way the the, when the report came out that said that racism wasn't a thing or didn't exist in the way that people thought it did the pushback wasn't just from black people it was from white people who've been engaged in the conversation and so on so um you find that um people are they they may not verbalize it so much but people are thinking about these topics and people have been kind of more educated so it's harder to kind of fight them and sort of play those games where you sort of pretend that you know gaslight people pretend things don't exist
0: I think that's so refreshing to hear that people you know, stepped forward and actually just that example you gave just shows you know, that you can't really genuinely judge a book by its cover, right? You need to speak to people and understand lived experiences, which is what the podcast is doing. So that's really good. I'm gonna definitely keep in touch with you and find out how that's going. So you're developing a multicultural sponsorship programme as well. Mm-hmm. So what is this multicultural sponsorship programme and what is it that you're trying to achieve with that?
1: yeah so so we've got senior leaders in our organization all of them you know want to see change and see more progression of people from multicultural backgrounds so essentially i mean non-white backgrounds coming through uh, the ranks um and so what this does is empowers those senior leaders so says all right you want to see change then you guys are actually the people with the most agencies to agency to help us achieve that so you repair, we pair the senior leaders with colleagues from multicultural backgrounds who you know, aspire to leadership and these senior leaders act as sponsors and so what they're essentially doing is is assisting the career progression of the person they're sponsoring you know holding sort of monthly meetings to discuss their uh, career progression what support they can give them you know extended career development opportunities so if the if the person who's being sponsored has a plan they can say well i'm interested in this area so person might arrange shadowing opportunity or uh, invite them to a, a sort of a high profile client meeting or you know push them forward for an external profile raising opportunity that sort of thing and then also provide guidance on up and coming roles um, it's a second opportunity you know all these different kind of opportunities that that prepare you for when that for, for when that sort of promotional opportunity comes up
0: that sounds fantastic yeah.
1: And to be fair, just to add, I think sponsorship actually is something that happens organically. Like mm-hmm. it tends to happen organically where the sponsor and the person they're sponsoring have common points of reference. So mm-hmm. someone will see someone that kind of reminds them of themselves, you know, maybe similar background, et cetera. And then they become an informal sponsor. But um, what happens is that if the leadership at the, at the current time it looks a certain way and then if you... Look or have a different experience to the leadership, then it's harder to have that sponsoring relationship organically, unless you kind of create it or help to create it. And so that's what we're trying to do.
0: So you're formalising what usually is kind of informal and organic, and and ensuring that there's some kind of achievements at the end, and you know you can really sort of share the experiences. But while that's all positive, surely mm. you must get some sort of pushback on this. Have you experienced that? It's actually been quite positive. I suppose
1: I always think in a way where because of again my lived experience I kind of preempt what's coming because I kind of see progress more as a, a pendulum rather than an arc so you know sometimes you make progress and other times people push back and I think one of the one of the reasons that people may uh, push back on anything that is uh, like any kind of targeted intervention or affirmative action program is that People kind of cling to the idea or concept of meritocracy, where I mean, we're, we're all equal now, so why should you target any specific group for help? And mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like breaking that down a little bit and helping people to understand that you know you've got a default setting where when you're the, the what's class as the default setting, so non-racialized, non-genderized, etc. There's a certain like advantage or privilege that comes about that, that you don't actually see, and so when you uh, but when you are from a different background or a different race then there are going to be uh, certain disadvantages that, that you may not may not see and just kind of bringing people to that reality of understanding and so when people kind of uh, get it and they, they will get it through that proximity or getting to know the lived experience for the people and then they're ready to kind of understand why these these initiatives are necessary
0: mm, absolutely and how are you going to track the progression? and employee engagement after
1: the program's finished. Uh, yeah, so it's a 12-month program. We do a survey at the beginning just to see where people are at in terms of, you know, how they how they feel they're doing at the moment and what their needs are and then we survey them at the end to see if those uh needs were met and if they if they feel they've progressed or feel more confident within that within that 12-month period. I mean, in addition to that, we survey our workforce more generally. So um every month we'll ask questions around inclusion and just to see if there is kind of progression in terms of how people feel, how inclusive we are, you know, are we moving forward. And then on top of that, we separate the findings based on demographic data. So we're not just gonna ask everyone if they feel that the uh, if we're inclusive agenda, we will ask, we'll get the findings back or, what do men say, and what do women say, and the same with things like race. You know, what do each ethnic group have to say, and then we can see whether there's a gap in terms of the reality and this perspective that you know that people experience. And then if there is, we know where we need to target resources.
0: That sounds really good. And um, best of luck with it. And it's good that you've got senior management commitment as well. So Omnicom Media Group has eight DNI advisory teams. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about these teams, and also how important have they been to help inclusivity?
1: I mean, they've been key, really, because the advisory teams are the they're like the representatives of like the wider work, the wider kind of working community within uh, Omnicom Media Group. So, you know, if we want to get the buy-in of everybody, the advisory key, the advisory teams are key to that. And also, you've got people there who are really passionate with that lived experience they can bring. Um, I mean, obviously people have their day jobs as well. So people do these things in, in addition uh, on a voluntary basis. So there's a limit and I have to make sure that I'm able to sort of be there and support them as much as I can. But you know, there's so much passion there. And when it's, you know, your colleagues that are sharing these experiences or bringing these experiences to the forefront, it's, there's something about that that is going to um, like resonate over maybe like someone that you've never heard of, because this is someone that you you know work alongside, and you know you're getting to learn more about their experience and the things that they care about. And so that the, these advisory teams, they have the ability to kind of even work together and, on sectional issues, but also reach out across the organisation and sort of bring more people into the conversation.
0: And what so, actually are the eight DNI advisory teams? They have specific remits.
1: Yeah, so they cover the like the eight, if you like, eight protected characteristic areas. So you've got uh, one that looks at age, so it ensures that we're not being discriminatory in terms of people who are maybe at the younger younger end or the older end um, of their working career. Uh, multicultural team uh, that I've mentioned a few times. Uh, women looking at gender. Uh, one for working parents and people who, are, who care responsibilities, the LGBTQ plus group, uh, social economic group. So that's you know people from working class backgrounds and then the, the disability group and then the group that looks at mental health. Um, and even I think one of the groups I will mention is the LGBTQ plus group. Because one, one thing I've noticed about that group is that you know diversity in itself is it's like a coalition, right? So yeah. we all have to kind of sort of stand, stand together. Like yeah. one of the things with the lgbt group that plus group that i've mentioned is like the people with the most agency within that grouping uh, tend to be the white gay men and what i've seen is how they've really gone into kind of they've understood that and they've really gone into back for the other constituent parts so you know uh, to, to kind of really pass the mic on to um uh, lesbian women or transgender uh men and women and and so on because the struggle for sort of gay rights has been the kind of preeminent one the one that everyone's aware of but then it's not so far ahead for the rest but gay men within that kind of group have really kind of started pushing gender for the other groups so I think that's really admirable
0: so you're sort of seeing allyship even within the actual networks or yeah exactly yeah yeah. yeah you
1: put it better than I did yeah allyship
0: that's really good. I'm loving the sound of that. We need more of that, please. <laughs> and um, the use of data, which you talked about throughout the whole call, really, obviously around diversity is increasing even more and more. You just see organizations really leaning more into their data. But mm. you know, how important is it to analyze this data? Because we can get over-obsessed, right, with just data and not actual action. But how yeah. important do you think data is when creating an inclusive workplace? So data is important actually it leads back to one of the other questions you said
1: you know where people feel that what's the justification for doing these types of things where the data will give you that that partly will give that that justification because when you see the numbers you know uh or the lack of representation or, or or the numbers of people from a particular group that are facing sort of worse circumstances then that kind of leads you to a to a uh, to a direction to say, yes, we need to take remedial action. The data is important in that sense, but you're right that in that there are limitations. The data won't tell you the whole story. Um, so sometimes you'll need some anecdotal um, or lived experience to go alongside that to explain the numbers. But on top of that, if you have very limited data in the sense that there aren't enough people from that demographic uh, represented, then you won't have enough to give you, you, to like look at any trends and the data becomes you can't get anything too meaningful from it. So that's when you will have to kind of look more closely at the lived experience and bring that to the, to the forefront to try and explain what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. It's finding the, it's finding the balance, basically, mm. isn't it? And when it comes to data, I mean, are you aware of any really good tools that people can use? Because also, you know, just data itself is it's a full-time job. So are there any tools that you particularly use for analysing data?
1: Yeah, so I mean, we, we've got one of our agencies that specialised in that. So that kind of gets almost outsourced. So we get people do our kind of surveys and then once the surveys go off, they'll then, it'll then be sort of analysed by the, you know, the data specialists. But you know, what I try and do is ensure that um, to make the data meaningful is split it by certain groups so that what you're getting is not just an overall picture because sometimes what happens is you get an overall picture and the weight of numbers so if the majority group says something that becomes the result just because they're the majority group so if you're able to split the data in a meaningful way you can then get greater insights so either by different gender groups or by different ethnicities and so on and that will I think that gives you and then you can actually look at the the experience gap between what one group is saying and another group is saying so I feel that's a, a tip for people when they're dealing with data
0: yeah, I think that makes sense. And so, obviously, you're in quite new in your new role. But mm-hmm. say, you know, five years from now, what's your kind of the big north star that you're aiming for in DNI? Essentially, it is
1: changing the makeup of the the top layers, and I mean that is the, the the real challenge because it takes time. Because you know, people when people are on their way up. They're always hustling to get somewhere, so they never, they don't want to stay where they are too long. But once you're at the top, you're kind of comfortable where you've been aiming to get to. So the, the the kind of churn or the turnover isn't that isn't that quick, and then there aren't the spaces there. So it's just finding a way to kind of achieve that without people feeling that they've lost something, and that's the aim. I mean, ultimately, I suppose the aim is for. Um, jobs like mine not to need to exist and then I could go off and do anything I want
0: (laughs) you can be in the Caribbean or Mexico or something a nice uh, cocktail Mm. yeah that makes sense and so do you have any final words in terms of or any advice that covers something that we haven't touched on that you want to leave with our listeners Reg
1: I think just on a on an individual level I think I would just encourage everyone to kind of reach outside of their boxes because it's like it's really enriching like the fact that I've gone into the DNI world as it's exposed me to loads of different areas of sort of diversity that I wasn't aware of so you know I understood my lived experience what it's like to be a black boy growing up in East London and everything all the kind of challenges come along with that but then you know I I don't I I had no idea what it's like to be a transgender young person in like outside of London you know somewhere else in England you know so it's just kind of open you know open your minds and just be open to um, engaging with people from a different background because then that enriches you and informs you and I feel like I've had that experience I'd like other people to have that and then if we're all on that kind of page it just makes all of that inclusion work that we're doing just easier because we've got a wider understanding
0: yeah absolutely so having an open mind and just making more of an effort actively to try and find out about other people from walks of life different yeah Yeah, and the the workplace is actually a great place to do. It is right. Yeah, yeah, it is. It just has to have the the empathy and the willingness. mm. to But it's
1: only school. It's school, and then you've got the workplace. Those are the places where everyone comes together. You haven't really got anything else. And even with schools, it's kind of like it's skewed a little bit because you have like private schools and etc. And so you get people divided by sort of social economic group. But workplace, it's you know that's a real opportunity to really reach out and find out about other people's experiences
0: definitely oh thank you so much it's been really great talking to you and finding out about all the different initiatives that you're you know taking forward Mm. where can people connect with you or find out more about the work that you're doing
1: yeah I mean I'm, I'm on LinkedIn I'm not really great on social media but I do uh, post my articles on LinkedIn um, every now and again I'm probably due to write one I've not written one for a little bit but <laughs> yeah LinkedIn is probably the best place to uh, connect with me I'm usually always happy to have a call I mean I've um, a lot of people have reached out to me want to get into the d world and I'm always happy to kind of give a little bit of time and explain how I got in and how other people can get in and, and so on so um, yeah just look, look for me Reg Amwa uh, on LinkedIn and I'm happy to have a conversation
0: awesome thank you so much reg it's been a pleasure and um yeah thank you you're welcome thank you for listening to the race forward pod i'm your host lydia Igwe. if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast do visit us on social media at Race Pod or visit our website, www.raceforwardpod.com. See you in the next episode.